Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. As listeners may know, we're in the middle of a series of podcasts on polarization, exploring what keeps our country so divided. Yeah, so we've decided to do a show that challenges both of us to climb out of our political trenches. It's called My Side is Wrong. And Jim, you've chosen three topics for me to explain what liberals get wrong. And to keep things even, Richard, you've chosen three examples for me to talk about why conservatives are wrong. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do do we we fix it? it? How do we fix it? Jim, one of the unique things about how do we fix it is that both you and I discuss potential solutions from different points of view. That's a polite way of saying we often agree to disagree. Yeah, you lean right and I lean left. And I think lean is the operative word here. Neither of us are hardcore partisans uh, on either side. This podcast might have be even more lively if we were. But in general, it is a problem for so many liberals and conservatives that they don't really understand the other side's arguments. Republicans and Democrats often have a warped view of what the other side actually believes. And that has a dire impact on public policymaking, the quality of debates, and also how we could possibly find common ground. Because unless liberals like me know what conservatives like you are thinking, it weakens our case. Before we get started, Richard, let's establish a couple of ground rules. The most important is know your ciderism. In other words, neither of us can say, yeah, my side's got some problems, but your side does the same thing and much worse. One other rule is that we pretty much both have to stay on topic because if, if, if we don't, then the show could end up being 90 minutes long, which, which I, maybe that's something you'd like. <laughs> we'll try to keep it to a very Richard-esque 30 minutes. So a bell will sound if one of us breaks the rules. So with that in mind, Richard, you begin with the first argument that I provided to you about why my side, or in this case, your side, is wrong. Okay, here's, here's number one that you gave me, Jim. Liberals try to do too much, and as a result, many of their programs backfire. Oh, I could say the same thing about your side. <laughs> There's a lot to talk about in this case. I think you're right, Jim. Liberals often do try to do too much. And I'm going to give one granular example 
uh, which is something that you mentioned to me when we were talking about doing this show, which is San Francisco, and it involves housing and homelessness. San Francisco is one of the most liberal cities in America, and they spend a lot of money on social services, and they have a program uh, designed to increase low-income housing. But it's not going very well, is it? Because there are so many requirements for these new housing projects that they wind up costing as much as $700,000 per unit. Uh, the building codes are often very expensive. Low-income projects have to go through endless planning board approvals, so they take a long time. And the, among those rules, they have to use uh, small contractors, uh, ideally minority-owned, and they have to meet all kinds of environmental regulations. All of these well-intentioned demands make it nearly impossible to get new housing built. Now, there's a broader problem in California, which is the state has about 12% of total U.S. population. One in eight Americans live in California, but about half of all the people who are unsheltered or homeless living in the streets are in California. And a big reason is because housing is so expensive in the state. Restrictive codes enacted by my side, liberals, make the problem a lot worse. Now, clearly, something has to be done. Uh, more investment in homeless shelters is needed. Uh, but what about an interim solution? Bringing back boarding houses or SROs. Does the building code really have to outlaw shared bathrooms? What some would call substandard housing is, is better than no housing at all. Uh, another a place that has tried with a good deal of success to reduce the homeless population is Houston, where members of both parties and both the private sector and the public sector have got together on a very ambitious, broad range of solutions and have reduced uh, the, the homeless crisis by, I think it's about 60% in, in Houston over the last few years. Both The Atlantic and, and The New York Times did some very interesting reporting on this. So to your broader point, Jim, before I finish my first, my first, uh, first problem. <laughs> I thought you said we're side. trying not to go on too long, Richard. <laughs> I know, I know, I'm going on and on and on. But I, I agree with you, liberals do sometimes do too much. One final point I'll make before moving on to your criticism of, of your side is that, like most liberals, I do support government programs. I mean, I, I think that national health care is, is a good goal. Medicaid, Medicare, and Social Security all have been successful programs that have lifted countless numbers of people out of poverty and suffering. They've given Americans a greater sense that, that we're in this together. But when the government tries to do too much, it could do a bad job of delivering services. And that undermines the fundamental liberal case for government. You couldn't agree more. It was my idea. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, I would just say if you want to promote a government program, get the voters on your side, pass a bill that focuses on that problem and not try, doesn't try to solve four or five other problems at the same time. If you're building low-income housing, don't demand that they also put solar panels on the roof because because those things, it'll in the end, it'll never get built. Now, 
for me, on my side, you've suggested one that, that you're not going to get a lot of disagreement out of me on, and it goes like this. Too many on my side have failed to challenge Donald Trump and have embraced populism at the expense of our public institutions and democracy. This is something that non-Trump-affiliated Republicans have, ha- have watched happen. I remember back during the, the 2016 campaign and, and watching Trump and thinking, this guy could really destroy the Republican Party. And in some ways, he's in the process of doing that in, in the House of Representatives right now. Uh, the, the kind of Trumpy MAGA Freedom Caucus is working hard to dismember <laughs> any kind of Republican unity. Trump brought in a, a style of personal politics which is always about the personal brand first. It didn't doesn't matter if you damage the institution. It doesn't matter if you damage your ultimate cause as long as, you know, you get your 5 minutes in social media or on on Fox News and we're we're seeing a party that has migrated from some of its traditional values, not all of which, you know, I've never been a doctrinaire Republican. I'm more of a as, as you know, a squishy libertarian, but I align with the idea that government should be limited, that taxes shouldn't be any higher than necessary, that uh, America needs strong defense, you know, some of the sort of basic tenets of what was conservatism. Uh, what Trump managed to do, and maybe it was brilliant, maybe he stumbled into it, was attract this wide group of disaffected People, we often describe Ma- the MAGA movement as ultra conservative, but it's not at all, really. You know, what Trump did was he absorbed a lot of traditional left wing arguments, some of which maybe were right. I mean, the criticism of the the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan that had a lot of popular appeal. The the sense that our economic system and free trade were not working for everybody, but he brought in these disaffect in many cases disaffected democrats or independents and somehow converted a lot of them into something more like super fans it's not necessarily a majority of republicans but there's a massive chunk uh, at least a third of republicans for whom trump could do no wrong they will consider no other candidate and uh you know they will go down with the ship with uh with their leader even if it takes the the Republican Party and the values that supposedly the party once stood for, it takes all that down with it. So I, I think there's something that is kind of a little bit tragic about that. And I'm certainly not arguing that the you know the the George Bush Republican Party was some kind of wonderful thing that could do no wrong. But I do believe in the two party system. I do believe in a dialectic between right and left. That dialectic requires a party that has at least some a modicum of of dignity and consistency, and and apparently that's that's all gone now. You said people failed to challenge Trump, so you're starting with the assumption a lot of people didn't agree with Trump, and I think that's right. But I think an awful lot of moderate or not necessarily moderate of mainstream Republicans, they just thought I'll keep my head down. I won't challenge Trump. That's a good way to end your career overnight. I will just kind of stay quiet or nod along or go along with this stuff 
and in a couple of years he'll be out of office and it'll be over. Well, it's not over. All those people who went along with it, you know, are, are still risking their careers. And uh, and now we're heading into another election where just kind of unbelievably uh, Biden, Trump, two of the least popular politicians in America are the likely candidates on both sides. You referred to this, Jim, for Donald Trump's most ardent followers, celebrity is probably more important than governance. But for a small number of elected Republicans, from Liz Cheney to Adam Kinzinger, Mitt Romney, Brad Raffensperger, and Governor Brian Kemp of Georgia, it was important to stand up to Trump. And several of them have paid for it with their political careers. And I think they're among the most admirable people in our public life. Richard, it's your turn to to go to our next question, one that I gave to you. Which is, liberals live in a fantasy land when it comes to the costs of their programs. And I do have to admit, I've changed my mind on this over the past few years, because when Biden first came into office, he initially proposed over $6 trillion in new spending. And I was really skeptical when West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin and a few other centrists went, wait a minute, hang on here. This is way too much. And they forced other Democrats to to pare back some of their very ambitious proposals. And I think ultimately, uh, Manchin performed a real service to the country. Um, In the end, the Democratic majority in Congress and the administration did increase federal spending by more than $3 trillion, which may have been much easier to defend if Congress had passed tax increases to go along with that and fund some of those programs, but they didn't. And we had huge deficits and debt. The annual gap between what the government takes in and what it spends is $1.5 trillion this year. That's the deficit. Total accumulated government debt is now around $31 trillion, and that debt mountain is 450% higher than it was in the year 2000. And on top of all that, the Social Security Administration is warning that without changes, it will run out of funding in less than a decade, which could lead to big cuts in monthly payments for Social Security recipients. So it's pretty alarming. The high rate of spending is part of the problem. And while I'm not sure that liberals live in a fantasy land, they are clearly not being as realistic as they should about the true costs of these government programs. Richard, you kudos to you. There was no bell ring uh, necessary on this answer. You managed to get through this entire answer without mentioning one of your favorite objections, which is the fact that Republicans aren't very good on government spending uh, and uh, and the deficit either. You know, I have to try really hard <laughs> not to say that. <laughs> it's true, and uh, there was a, a a big increase in the deficit under Trump. Now, a lot of that was one-time COVID spending, but also a tax cut that didn't have corresponding cost cutting to go with it. And Trump has joined other populists in absolutely ridiculing the very idea of a grown-up approach to our entitlement mess. Which leads very nicely into my second example for you, Jim, of where conservatives are wrong. They're not serious about the huge increase in the federal debt and have abandoned 
uh, much of their fiscal prudence of the past. There's a lot of truth to it. The question is, so how do we make a kind of a grown-up response to the debt part of our public dialogue? Part of the the problem I have with populism, populism on both sides, is that it rewards short-term thinking. It rewards emotional thinking. I'm going to give you just a little bit of a bing for both sides. <laughs> Sorry. So, um, but if you make it impossible to to even bring up this topic, if you make it a political third rail, then you're penalizing anyone who might want to come up with a compromise. You know, this is something you see a lot from the kind of MAGA Republicans. Oh, this one's a rhino or he's a squish because he actually had a conversation with the Democrat about some problem. This is a, a huge issue. It may well take some kind of crisis to get us back to, to uh, being able to address these problems like grownups. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. Our conversation continues in just a moment. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. We're back with the third uh, thing that you wanted me to talk about, which is that liberals are too quick to decide that anyone who disagrees with them is not just misinformed, but evil. That is a problem. Our political life has become increasingly coarse. Uh, we lash out on social media and other platforms preferring slogans to, to more interesting, nuanced, complex arguments or points of view. One of many examples of, of this is how progressives accuse conservatives of being racist or how they attribute any business practice they don't like to greed. That knee-jerk response makes it impossible for many on the left to understand the reasons why conservatives hold the views that they do, or to, you know, look at their own side and examine it more skeptically. I mean, let's let's take a look at greed for just a moment. I mean, the desire to get rich, and, and this may be uncomfortable to say, but, but the desire to get rich is often one reason why people work harder and, and provide better service to the community. I mean, long hours at work and innovation are, are linked. And I've been around the owners of small businesses who live in very nice homes and drive fancy cars, but many of them have worked very hard for it. They've worked hard for their business, worked hard at their craft. One 
example is, and this is doesn't involve small business, but large, is that right before COVID, many on the left blasted big pharma for being far too greedy and putting the pursuit of profit over investment in new drugs. And then what happened? It was Pfizer, it was Moderna, sometimes with government help, but not always, that came up with an extraordinary range of new drugs and vaccines that helped uh, put the COVID crisis at bay and saved countless lives. That, at least to a considerable extent, was the result of big pharma, something that I don't think many on the left are comfortable uh, accepting. Increasingly, coverage in many newspapers and and on the radio focuses on the costs of capitalism, on the victims. But benefits should also be mentioned. I mean, during the second half of 2020, where would we have been without Amazon and other online services? And the companies, the systems, and their workers proved to be a lifeline uh, for people who were too scared to leave their homes to get the basic goods that they needed. So I do think that, that we need to be more humble in, the, in how we approach public debate. You know, it's not, and it's not that easy to do. Traditionally, this idea that of looking at, at political differences primarily as moral differences, it's a very kind of fun, exciting way to look at the world, but it makes it almost impossible to really uh, come to good policies. But I would say the left, the far left especially, that was part of that worldview. Sadly, some of that's been absorbed on the right. I often say that uh, that one thing Trump did was bring a lot of the worst parts of the left to the populist right. And this is one of them. You mentioned Big Pharma. Yeah, I wrote a piece. I think my work in headline was something like two cheers for Big Pharma, making some of the points that you just made. And yet, who who's against Big Pharma now? It's the populist right is you know, assuming that vaccines are bad, it's all part of a conspiracy, and and they're making too much money. So these these populist arguments that that hinge on morality are can be, well, they're populist, they can be very popular. The third point that I asked you to talk about involves climate change. Yeah, so this is that Unlike conservative parties in some other countries, many on my side of the table refuse to accept the reality of climate change. And I, I, I accept this with a few caveats. Uh, the, this picture has changed a lot in the last couple of years. I, I wrote an article for City Journal a couple of years ago about the, the growing contingent of both young Republican activists and members of Congress who are taking climate change more seriously. They're not afraid to say it. About half the, at least half the Republicans in the House of Representatives are part of a, of a climate caucus. So that's a definite change. What are they willing to do about it? That's where the rubber meets the road. Of course, we have to take climate change seriously. That doesn't mean that I accept, you know, AOC's prescription for what good climate policies would be. <laughs> <laughs> am, I, am, I, am I allowed to do that? <laughs> um, I didn't say your side, too. I'm advising okay. my side. Okay. I'm not saying your side also refuses to accept climate change, but I'm saying that 
There's accepting the reality of climate change, and then there is accepting a grandiose prescription for how to fix it that I think might be worse than the problem. And so here, as, as listeners know, I'm a big advocate for nuclear power, for streamlining regulations to make sure that we can get to low carbon power much more quickly. And But I'm a bit of a skeptic of some of the current policies, which honestly, I think will backfire. I do think that weirdly, uh, this nuclear power obsession of mine is one of the areas where we do see a lot of common ground between Democrats and Republicans. Biden has a really good policy on on this. A lot of Democrats voted uh, for pro-nuclear policies under Trump, bills that Trump signed, and a lot of Republicans support some of the infrastructure ideas related to clean energy under under Biden. So this may be one of the areas where we are able to find a little bit of common ground. I hope we keep going. So on that kumbaya moment, Jim, how do you think our our experiment went? I think pretty well. Do you think we modeled sort of appropriately respectful dialogue across the, the partisan chasm? Well, there certainly weren't too many bells sounding. Uh, I, I think part of the problem for us, Jim, is that both of us are just too reasonable. I know. <laughs> you know, oh, Richard, then, if only everyone was as moderate and smart and well-informed as we are, there we could just solve all the problems in the world, don't you think? That's right. We, we would be closer to fixing it. And with that, Richard, I think it's time to move to the final phase of our podcast, which is our recommendation. And you have something for us this week. Yeah, I'm going to recommend a short nonfiction book that was published earlier this year by Richard Haas, who's the former president of the Council on Foreign Relations. He wrote a book called The Bill of Obligations. And the central argument is that when most of us think about citizenship, we think of rights. Uh, We think of freedoms. Uh, Richard Haas argues that, yes, Those are fine. He's not opposed to them, but that we should also consider our obligations and responsibilities to one another. And he lists 10, in fact, 10 responsibilities, some of which are obvious, stay open to compromise, remain civil, reject violence. But there are also some others that we don't always think about, which is valuing norms. And he he kind of walks through the difference between a law and a norm. Um, A norm is just normal behavior, something that people usually do out of courtesy and respect for one another. Uh, Another one that he talks about is the need to respect government service. It doesn't mean you always have to agree with what the government does, but the idea that anybody who works for the government is a a bureaucrat and is out to get you uh, doesn't help us uh, get along with one another or or govern the country effectively. And then the, the other thing, and I think he's planning to devote a lot more time to this, is uh, teaching civics um, more effectively in schools. So that's that's basically what the book is about. I really agree with that part about norms. You know, a few years ago, we interviewed Jonathan Rauch about his great book, The Constitution of Knowledge. And a lot of what he talked about was the glue that holds our society together. It's not all, you know, in the Constitution or in the laws. A lot of it's in our traditions, the, the traditions of respectful disagreement and scholarship and 
and journalistic traditions of of accuracy and honesty and and publishing a correction if you're wrong. So many of these things they they're not legal requirements; they're just norms. And a lot of them have been washed away in in recent years. Uh, I I think we we're we're suffering the after effects of that. And and maybe I, I don't I don't really see a turnaround on it. But at least we need to talk about it. And I'm sure this is something we will be talking a lot more about in future episodes. It's how do we. Fix it. I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. Our producer is Miranda Schaefer. This podcast is a production of Davies Content. Uh, we make podcasts and we also are a media consulting firm. Find out more at DaviesContent.com. And Jim, you say it. And thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. 